Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Uh, cool to look up on Slido if you want to ask questions anonymously, and also there may be a chance to pop your hand in the air as well. The storm is calm, but the bed is driven. What are we doing this life when the storm is not calm? I had uh, another thing I was going to end the sermon with that I thought just wasn't appropriate given where I wanted to end it and um, I asked the question how does Matthew 8 teach us to pray when storms hit and I think it gives us four answers and you can see it all crossed out there so <laughs> uh, honestly in the weakness of our faith and the trials knowing that Jesus is full of grace. So when a storm comes, just cry out honestly. The disciples at least were honest. They, they never, you know, they always had integrity. That they, they, you know, it was just who they were. Submissively, I think the passage teaches us. So I cry out honestly, knowing that Jesus has grace for my little faith and fears. But then I also cry out submissively, going, I think you're going to refine me through this. You're not just going to fix my problems. And I have to then pray that prayer, your will be done, not mine expectantly, knowing that he may answer according to your will, but if he doesn't, it's because he has greater will. So we should have an expectation that something's going to come out of this storm, whether a calm as we want it or a different thing. And then the final one, which is so honestly, submissively, expectantly, and then outwardly, keeping our eyes off ourselves onto the needy world. Throughout church history, many theologians have seen this story as the boat is the church, and the wind and the waves of the persecution of the world as we share the gospel. So as we go through storms, as we go about the mission of Jesus and we feel weak, let's not, you know, that song's beautiful, you know, keep our eyes above the waves, keep looking out beyond ourselves, because storms take us in. And that's appropriate for moments where we need to just recover, but it can keep us in. And no, no, go back out after. All the so there were, there were four things that I had that might help us. What do we do? Uh, pray honestly, pray submissively, pray expectantly, and keep praying outwardly. I don't know if there's other, there's many other things that could be said, but that just fitted, so thank you. Do you want to start with, uh, carry on with that top question, how do we explain to a sceptic or an unbeliever that God is still good and real, even when the innocents suffer? Yeah, I mean, it depends if that question is a philosophical question or a personal question. So if it's a philosophical question, again, my talk was about a thousand words too many. Alvin Plantinga and Peter Van Inwagen, I actually heard him speak. Uh, there was a load of sceptical philosophers in the 70s that thought they could disprove God's existence because of pain and suffering in our world, disproving his existence. And the argument went, if I can uh, find it on my notes, uh, they, had th- they had three steps. Give me a second. Uh, here we go. Uh, yeah, uh, a true, the first, this is the argument against the existence of God from evil. A truly good God would not want evil to exist, an all-powerful God would not want, allow evil to exist, premise one. Evil exists, premise two. Conclusion, therefore a, good, a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. But, as has been proved by the philosophers, that they'd smuggled in a third premise. So, premise one, a, good, a truly good God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Evil exists, premise two. Smuggled in premise three, God does not have any good reasons to allow evil to exist. 
and therefore the argument falls apart. And uh, people can often then see an implicit assumption in that hidden premise that if I can't see any good reasons why God is allowing evil to be permitted, then there can't be any good reasons. And then obviously that just, you realise how stupid that is, right? So and that's a philosophical answer. And uh, you can read Alvin Plantinga, God, Freedom and Evil, uh, you know, 80, 100 pages, that sort of, that they, they realise that argument can't win. You can't disprove God's existence from evil anymore. Um, that's, a, that's a philosophical answer. On a personal answer, I always go to the cross. How do I know that a God of love exists given evil? Well, he went through the ultimate evil for me. So on a personal, I have to reapply the message of the cross to my life. But on a philosophical, you might need to grapple with that. The best book on this is a guy that I quoted today, Tim Keller, Walking with God Through uh, Pain and Suffering, just masterful book. And uh, he takes it through three sections, understanding the furnace, facing the furnace, and walking with God in the furnace. And uh, the first section is very philosophical, and you can skip it if you're in a storm. But if you want the philosophy, it's in there. So uh, anything you'd add, Sharon? Well, just that those are the philosophical and the objective answers which are the most true to hold on to. But I think also when we're chatting with um, unbelievers or people who are not following Jesus, that sharing how you have experienced that can also be a helpful addition to that. Have you as a believer known God with you in the midst of that? Have you, have you seen or experienced your faith being strengthened? And hopefully there's been aspects of that. And I think that could be a helpful um, illustration to those yep. objective answers. So, so I bought some other books. Uh, These Strange Ashes by Elizabeth Elliot. Just a very moving book from a young lady that went to Ecuador and everything went wrong. Very, very moving. And about the sovereignty of God's will. And then if you've never read any of Johnny Erickson, she's a master. She's a paraplegic from a diving accident at 17 mm-hmm just so moving her story and even now she's writing about 50 years of being a paraplegic and God's will and God's love so just that's a theological book a step further that's her story uh, just very moving and then a book that I basically give to everyone in this church when I find out they're going for a storm is called Out of the Storm Grappling with God in the Book of Job by Christopher Ash. a hundred odd <laughs> crash a hundred odd pages you can leave it don't worry leave it a hundred odd pages uh, I cannot recommend that book highly enough if you're in a storm. So uh, there you go. That leads us then on to this next question. How do we find reassurance when it seems like God is asleep in the storm? And I think, I was thinking here we have this encounter, Jesus with the chaps, the disciples who were men in the boat. But of course, there's so many encounters with Jesus. We've had Jesus with Mary and Martha when he wasn't asleep, but he delayed his return. And they're brother died and they knew it was powerful and they said why why did you take so long why didn't you come back so they were filled with questions and they believed who he was and he was tender and compassionate he uh, but he also explained to them that there was a purpose in that gap he was going to display his glory and so often I recall that in a storm because we don't walk by sight they didn't see his glory in those interim days. They didn't feel his glory in those interim days. They just saw their brother had died and they knew Jesus could have come and healed him and were filled with questions. So if I don't fill my mind with those stories, then other things will fill my mind. All the questions and all the doubts and all the fear. So I have to fill my mind with the character of Christ and say, oh, this is how he acts 
consistently. He is in control. He is good. And somehow he has chosen to get glory by allowing this storm. Now that doesn't feel nice, but in the kind of act of having to renew my mind, I'm walking by faith and not by sight. I don't see how he's going to solve the situation, but by faith I'm choosing to believe he's going to get glory and he has a purpose in this, but it is a real muscle. Yeah, and I mean, muscle. you said, I can't see it. I don't know how he's going to get glory, and what's the purpose? And the cross is the place where you see those three things, because no one thought the cross was a good thing. The disciples all fled. All the women were crying. The enemies thought they were winning, and yet in the cross, God was going to be most glorious. He had a great purpose, and I can't remember your third one. He, we, we, we couldn't see it until after. Yeah. So the cross, again, is just where you have to keep going. Yeah. Um, the Mary and Martha story is a wonderful complement to today's story because today's story is more like, why are you, you know, fearful? You're a little faith. And you're like, I'm in a storm. What do you think? And, and you need, we need to hear these messages today. But he weeps with Mary. Yeah. And so we need to hear that message as well. They complement each other, the two passages. Yeah. Steve, how do we think about the devil and suffering? Yeah, well, the book of Job is the answer. Uh, that God allows terrible permissions that the devil is allowed to operate under. He's a chain devil. He's a defeated devil, but he's still a powerful devil, but he never operates outside the limits God gives him. Mm. And that's why we can trust that whatever purposes the devil has, last week's talk, we know that God's purposes will be greater. Um, and it also helps us understand that God is never the one actively, well, rarely the one actively bringing the evil into our lives. He's allowing it, and the devil is the one mm-hmm. who's the maleficent one in there. Um, and that theologically and philosophically can help us realize that God can stand behind good and evil in different ways. He can stand behind good and evil, both sovereignly, but good, he is actively doing it, mm-hmm. and evil, he is not actively doing it. He's allowing someone else to do it. So mm-hmm. uh, you can yeah. wrap your head around that, yeah. But uh, <laughs> so, 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 yeah, the devil is active, and that was last week's talk. So if you missed last week's, do go mm-hmm. and go and think. But this is a great book for them. And practically, the Bible tells us, be alert. Yes. Don't be naive. He is at work. Be alert. Resist him, so with the word of God, we're, we're putting into our mind the truth, and be prayerful, so keep praying against his work. Um, what's an unhelpful way? Yeah, well, the two questions go together, yes, don't so they? Yes, yeah. so answer both so, of those. So, I mean, in Jesus' life, we see grace and truth. You know, he came from the Father full of grace and truth, so somehow we've got to do both those things. So when someone's going through a storm, don't be like Job's miserable comforters who offer him trite answers and go, get it sorted, you know, can't you get out of it? No, so we must weep with those that weep, we must be patient, we must walk alongside, we must understand the complexities of the journeys and and the human heart, and as Jesus was, we must always be gracious towards those in suffering, but never at the expense of, as we saw today, at the appropriate time in the appropriate way, bring in some challenge to how someone might be responding in the storm that isn't a good way. And if you just offer the grace, then they know comfort, but they'll never necessarily come out of the storm, if you just offer the truth, you'll be far too brutal for them in the storm to hear you. Mm-hmm. So for you to be a good companion in a storm, you need to offer lots of grace, which is the backdrop of where some challenge and truth can come in. But you need great wisdom and discernment mm-hmm. um, for that. Uh, so what's an unhelpful way is when you don't get that balance right, you just comfort but never bring any challenge or truth, or you just bring truth without 
any comfort. Mm-hmm. We're in Ireland, so cups of tea, as well as listening yeah. and prayer, and you know, care so, for the whole person, body and soul. Absolutely, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, yeah, care for the whole person, and you know, if someone's going through a tough time, just going around, being with them, caring yeah. for them. Yeah. Uh, how do you resist? Yeah. How do you resist straying from the storms? I think the key is to it's to win the battle of the mind. So you just need to keep coming to church, keep being honest with your Christian brothers and sisters, keep reading your Bible, keep praying, just keep going. I just feel like this is awful and nothing's happening and I've just got to keep going. And the great danger is when we lose the battle of the mind and then, you know, three months later, we're like, I've totally drifted and I just like, gave in to those thoughts and, and desires and now I'm nowhere. So you've got to go, Lord, I just... And you just be honest with him. Like I said, there's four things. Pray to honestly submit, you know. Lord, I'm just holding on and it feels brutal. Well, well done for holding on. You know, I think that would yeah. be my... And the only thing I'd add is community. Yeah. This is why we have one another, because we need one another. And even this week, I was feeling overwhelmed. You may have noticed that there's a baby coming very <laughs> soon. I was feeling overwhelmed, and, and the countdown was just looming. And I realized I needed friends to pray for me, because I was finding it hard to pray. So I, I sent out a text to others in the church and said, please pray for me. Here's how I'm feeling fearful. So we... We all need that. So one of the ways to resist um, strain when it feels overwhelming is reach out. But we also do that on Sundays as well. This is why we have times afterwards for you to come and pray or turn to the person beside you afterwards if you know them and say, please, will you pray with me? This is the storm I'm facing. So we need one another in that. And that is brilliant because the temptation is to go, I just feel ashamed or fearful. I don't want to reveal to others my weakness and I'm just going to disappear off. And when I'm strong enough to face church again, I'll go back. And I've just seen that as a pastor for years. And actually what you're doing is you're not allowing people into the storm, and therefore you're being very proud in your storm. And you need to just say, I'm really struggling. Would you pray? Sharon's a great example. And you'll find love, and you'll be humbled, and that's fine too. (laughs) You know, that's fine too. That's actually good. So stay with the church and stay, in other words, sharing. Not just coming on something, but sharing. You know, Louisa. Yeah, well, again, philosophically, the non-Christian has no resources. There is no God. It's just when we die, we rot. It's all random. It's meaningless genetic replication over billions of years of evolution. There is no meaning. There is no right and wrong. I don't even know what I define as evil in this world that has no moral order because it's just random. What's your question, Mr. Non-Christian? So I do that with the CUs, and you can realize everyone's going, oh, my word, the non-Christian has a greater problem in evil and suffering than the Christian because they have no resources to run to. They don't understand how they... Their question is actually meaningless if they take their worldview seriously. That's probably what most non-Christians don't need. But that is helpful for us to realize. And with people like Keller, help people realize as they come out, going, ah, you know, yeah, actually, wait, think about your worldview, and does it stand up? But then I would say, C.S. Lewis, is this God's megaphone mm-hmm. to rouse you and realize you are out of your depth and you need someone bigger than you. Mm-hmm. I remember Sharon just brought up the baby, speaking to a very high-powered KPMG lady when I was working in town with HubSpot. And she'd come to faith and she said, yeah, I, I was so powerful. I was becoming a VP and a partner. And, a, you know. and then I got pregnant and I just my world fell apart and I, and I had to cry out for someone great. I mean, it could take anything, you know? And so she realized I, I'm not all masterful and powerful and I need mm-hmm. someone. And she found Christ that way. It's just an example of 
wouldn't say that's suffering, but for her it felt like suffering at the time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, Steve, if I read it, uh, verse 2, would you then pray yes. for us as we conclude? If there's any final questions, come, and if you'd like prayer. Yeah. Okay. Come, uh, uh, Joe, I think we better stop because of time. We've yeah. gone past our time. But if that's your question, we can... Uh, I think that's a great verse. So, yes, go to Philippians 4. Uh, go to Romans 8, 28. Okay, I'm going to answer the question. <laughs> go to Philippians chapter 4. Go to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we know that in all things God works for the good of those that love him and neither life nor death and angels nor demons, the present nor the future and anything can separate us from the love of God. Um, so go to those, those would be two great places to, to go to, yeah. And here's a third from Hebrews chapter 13. God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Yeah, that's a great question, yeah. Uh, how do we pray for uh, healing or deliverance from our storms uh, whilst holding on that God may have a purpose that's bigger than that, that we can understand? And I think that's a, I think that's a really mature question because mm-hmm. I think there's two, uh, two naive answers. One is, well, we should never pray for healing and deliverance. That clearly isn't the case. And uh, there's another one that says, if you just have enough faith, God will always deliver you from your storms. And that's also a naive view the scriptures don't attest to, uh, attest to. So we need to somehow hold that tension. And a great example of that is in the fiery furnace. And you see them holding the tension of this. So Daniel and his three friends are uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. And in chapter 3, you see the prayer that we must learn to pray. Chapter 3.16 says... Um, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't, do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you have set up. So they say, we know God can. We actually have faith that we think he will, but even if we've got our faith wrong, we're not going to bow down. So I think that's how we go into storms. We go, Lord, I know you can. I have faith you will, and I'm going to keep praying. But if you don't, and so that's their version of the Gethsemane. Take this cup from me. Is there any other way this storm can go from me? Jesus cries out. And then he says, not, not, will by mine. Uh, you're, not your will, but mine. So whenever we pray for healing and deliverance, it must always be caveated by that kind of a statement. But that's tough. It'd be easier if it's simplistic. The life of faith wouldn't really be a life of faith. If, right, he's never going to deliver until heaven, or he always delivers if I have enough faith. In fact, those don't really require faith. It's the wrestle of, now you're in a relation, and then Jesus is taking you deeper. Right? And you're like, I want a simplistic, I'm not saying you do, we want a simplistic answer. No, 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 a life of faith, where he takes us deeper is what's offered. So. There you go. It's a struggle. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I actually for myself as well, sometimes find that like, practically looking to the Psalms or looking to other parts of scripture where I suppose God has, has gifted us the Bible to say, you know, come to, the, come to these verses when you're struggling. Um, I think that's actually one of the other questions here is, is there a verse um, that you go to when during, during the storms um, of life? But I think that's so good to think through because... Um, different seasons and different storms and there's so many times I go to the Bible and I remember just being like oh I read this and I was like gosh God really gets me and he actually really understands um what I'm going through and something that I've always um 
take a lot of comfort from is just going back to the story of the cross, going back to, I suppose, that's the foundation of Christianity and what it's all about, and knowing that he suffered and he gets me and he understood like things that I went through. Like I was like, oh, when I went through a really hard time in school and people let me down or hurt me or disappointed, I was just like, God wouldn't really get that. But then Jesus mm. is literally mm. betrayed by his best friends. And for some reason, I just completely overlooked that fact and that story. Um, so I don't know if it's, it's one verse, but yeah. there's... And well, I think yeah. that's great. The, the high priesthood of Jesus, he's a sympathetic high priest who can empathize with us. So Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 5, great places to live when you're suffering because you realize Jesus has gone through what you're going through. The gospel stories, like there you go, is a great place to live because you realize you're not uh, alone. He's with you. He's been there. The Psalms, live the Psalms, the Psalms of lament, the Psalms where they cry out, God, what's going on? You've abandoned me. Learn how to speak like that to God when you're in your storm. So live in the Psalms. Philippians 4, absolutely. Mm. Uh, Romans 8 is my go-to place, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him, and that in the end, nothing can separate me from him, not even life or death or anything else, and, and the groaning of creation that I live in now, the first, but I wait for liberation and for redemption. So those would be places, the Psalms, the book of Job, um, uh, Jesus' life, Philippians 4, yeah, and, uh, and Romans 8, some verses for you there. Um, I'll take the second question because, uh, oh, it's gone to the whatever question it is now. So top one, I think, is okay. most is most liked. liked. Yeah. How can we help unbelievers make sense of the circumstances they face? Yeah. So you have two approaches here, and you have to know your unbelieving friend. The first approach is a philosophical approach. The second one is a personal approach. And it's vital you get the right approach at the right time, because if you get the wrong approach, you can do more damage. The philosophical approach is to basically say, is your worldview big enough to handle what you're going through now? Because if you don't believe in God, and you think everything here is just chaotic and violent and random genetic replication through billions of years of evolution with the no hand of God, why do you expect a world that isn't full of chaos and evil where you find yourself suffering? Now, I'm not going to say that to a friend who's weeping on me, but at some point... Yes, they're like, really? Yes. But at some point, you are not, our non-believing friends need to realize their worldview doesn't have resources to handle what they're going through. And so they are now discovering, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to cope. And they can, of course, blame God. But if you take God out of the picture, you end up with nothing to help you other than just wishful thinking. So that's the first thing. And philosophically, and I, I cut this out of my notes, but there's, um, there's a book here. God, Freedom, and, uh, and Evil by Alvin Plantinga, probably the greatest Christian philosopher alive today and a great philosopher. And him and a guy called Peter Van Imwagen in the 70s uh, responded to the philosopher's objection to the problem of evil that, you know, we, we, can, we, can prove the exist, we can prove that God doesn't exist because of evil. And their argument went like this. This is the argument. A tr premise one, a truly good God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Premise two, evil exists. Conclusion, therefore a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. Plantinga, Inwag, and other people who are Christians or, or theists said they smuggled in a third premise to their argument. So really the argument went, a truly good God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not want, allow evil to exist. Evil exists. Three, the smuggled premise, God does not have any good reasons to allow evil to exist. And that, of course was not the case. 
that they had smuggled that in. And it could, they, within that premise was an implicit assumption, if I can't see any reason God might have for permitting evil, then there can't be any reason. And you realize how stupid that is when you say it out loud. So philosophically, evil doesn't disprove the dis- existence of God. Um, also, you could argue it proves it. Because if there is no God, what are you defining as evil and good? So without the definition of this moral order that God has given us, if it's all chaotic, there's no rhyme or reason, there is no moral order, there's no meaning, what are you defining as evil? So you need a category called God that will give you a moral framework of which you can decide what evil is, but that's the person you're trying to disprove. And this was C.S. Lewis, his great reason why he converted in the end, because he realized, he says, my atheism was too simple. So that's one way we've got to get good at helping our non-believing friends to realize their worldview can't handle the suffering that they're complaining about. Another good book, which he quotes a lot of Plantinger and Van Inwagen, is Walking with God Through uh, Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. It's in three parts. The first part is um, understanding the furnace. The second one is facing the furnace. The third one is walking with God in the furnace. The first one is all the philosophical stuff. Now, but how would I help a non-believer with it? I might have to go personal and I might do what um, Rebecca's done and share my personal testimony of how God has helped me in my suffering and how Jesus was with me in the boat, in the storm, and, and all that. And I need to then go to the humanity of Christ and all the things we just said and say, no, God understands. So if it's a death, if, if they've lost someone they love, if some, you, you'll find Jesus has, all that, has had all that suffering and he can sympathize and empathize with them. So uh, there'd be just two thoughts. I don't know if you have more. Yeah, I think sometimes I can be very guilty, just in life in general, of trying to come in and, and fix people's problems. <laughs> you know, I can do this, this, and this will result to this. Um, but sometimes it's actually better just to, to listen and to ask questions right. and to ask um, open-ended questions. So not kind of wanting an answer or steering someone the direction you want to go, but just, you know, saying, well, what do you believe in? Uh, what do you think about this? And just, and just having that discussion. And I think... Um, yeah, I think for, for me, that's been a really wonderful way and um, it's really challenged me to think about that rather than coming in and saying, I'm going to fix this person. No, Jesus came to the cross and, and he fixed us. Um, so we don't come with any better sort of, um, or from any better position than, than anyone else, but because of him. And um, so, yeah, just... I yeah, think that's great. Yeah. I agree. Listen, questions, weep with those that weep. There's a whole, as I said, you've got to get the right approach. So that's vital, especially with friends. And so how can we help unbelievers make sense of the circumstances? We might say, is this God's megaphone to rouse you? You know, we don't go there straight away, but we might say, is this revealing uh, something outside of your control that now you need help with that you can't control? So I I gave the example in our morning service that I remember meeting a very high-powered KPMG uh, director. She was going to become a partner uh, in the city when I worked for for, in the city. And... um, and she, uh, she said, you know, she had everything under control when she was a high-powered businesswoman. And then she got pregnant. And she realized she was completely out of her depth. And, and that's why she, she got led to faith in Christ through this. It wasn't really, a, it was a storm to her. It was a blessing, but she couldn't see it as a blessing at the time. And so, in one sense, God roused her out of, I've got life under my control. So, God may be doing that in the, with your non-believers. But they need patience, gentleness, questions. So uh, I would answer the, the first one with that idea of questions. A really common question is, why do bad things happen to good people? I struggle to respond. It needs wisdom for each individual. Respond, agree. Do you have any tips? The first thing to do 
When you look at the life of Jesus, he rarely responds to a question with an answer. So if someone would say to me, why do you think bad things happen to good people? I might say, that's a great question. Why do you think bad things shouldn't happen to good people? I guess if you live a good life, then God will bless you. Ah, so that's what you believe about God, that it's a kind of bartering relationship. If you live and it's basically salvation by... You see, and now I've moved the conversation on. Now, there may be other things that need to be said, but the, 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 the apologetic skill of asking a question when, when asked a question to reveal underlying assumptions that they haven't thought through is a really key skill we've got to get better at. So um, that would be one way of doing it. The other thing I would say is, you know, the life of Jesus, the, great, the, the goodest person that ever lived, suffered the greatest badness. So my, my worldview says that that's often how things work. The book of Job is a book about a man, the oldest book of, in history grappling with suffering. And it's about a man who lived a, a very morally good life and yet suffered atrocious things. And so the Bible has 42 chapters to try and figure that out. And trite answers from his miserable comforters don't work. So we might need to grapple with this one. And if you are in a storm or know someone in a storm, I cannot recommend a better book, Out of the Storm, Grappling with God in the Book of Job. I give this to everyone in church, in this church, who I know goes through a storm. I said, you've got to read this book at some point. 110 pages by Christopher Ash. While I'm recommending books, thanks, thanks, thanks. Only four more thanks, up here. Th th thanks for the questions. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, who wrote, who Tim Keller quotes, who is one of Keller's sort of mentors, she famously wrote Through the Gates of Splendor about her husband being martyred by a tribe in Ecuador. Amazing book. But before that, when she was your age, she went to, uh, uh, well, you know, early 20s, mid-20s. Some of you are not that age, I apologize. Uh, she went to Ecuador on a year or two to, and everything went wrong. I mean, everything went wrong. It's a very moving story. In other words, God prepared her for the great suffering that she was going to have her husband killed. These Strange Ashes, fantastic and moving. And she grapples with the sovereignty of God and can say things like Keller quoted because of grappling with it. Another lady who I'm just so moved by, she's still around, she's still writing. Elizabeth Elliot died a year or so ago. Uh, Johnny Erickson, she was paralyzed, became a quadriplegic at the age of 17 from a diving accident. And um, she wrote a book called Joni, or Johnny, which is her story of becoming a paraplegic and then grappling with God. And it's so, it makes you cry, this book. Uh, really moving. And then a step further is her coming to grips with the theology of what I've been trying to teach tonight. And it's marvelous, very nuanced and very pastoral, but very robust. And she still writes, there was an article on the Gospel Coalition website a few years ago called 50 Years of Being a Paraplegic. And I, I can't remember the title, but I still sing the praises of God, you know? Wonderful lady still writing today. So some books for you to consider that might help you. I don't know what time. Yes, we might be out of time. We are yeah. out of time, um, but lots of good questions. And I would encourage you, if you're sitting there and you have more questions, Steve and I will be up at the front. I would also encourage you, if you are going through a storm mm. and you want prayer, please come up. Um, there are so many people either from the congregation team or our staff team who would love to pray for you. And if you just come up to the front, and there'll be someone there. So thank you so much uh, for coming this week and for all your questions. Please invite your friends, uh, teammates, work colleagues, pottery class friends, whatever people do these days um, along because it'd be so great um, to have uh, more people here next Sunday. Um, thank you so much. And remember, God is with you even in the storm. Have a great Amen. week.